0: The stars didn't go out one by one. The U.S. wasn't replaced with the next thing. It was replaced by wherever one happened to be. The place one happened to reside at the moment of the arrest, which after a fitful start had come overnight. Did they even call it the arrest elsewhere? Journeyman counseled himself to be done with such speculation. Be here now. Wherever you go, there you are. All politics are local. Every bumper sticker had come true at once, even as the cars slumped sidelong from the roads to make way for other means of transit. The, what you're doing with your monitor is essentially what happens in my like storage dungeon training room and it's a concrete room so I had to learn how to drill bolts into concrete um to erect the monitor but then of course like before that happened the monitor was on like a series of upturned cardboard boxes yeah uh, which yeah. then when my apartment flooded while I was away <laughs> Oh god! <laughs> like came back, and like all of the cardboard boxes. It's like a Salvador Dali in there, except yeah, yeah. instead of clocks, oh, it's fucking storage boxes just slumping to the ground. Yeah, man, you just
1: need some damn old Tapco bolts, man. <laughs> just like drill those bitches in five sixteenths or three eighths, you know, and four of them. That'll hold that some bitch up for forever, man. You don't I... need to be using any kind of cardboard, not in Portland, man. That's gonna just turn into food for mold. <laughs> <no time. laughs>
0: Totally. Uh, the bolts that Greg gave me uh, were way too long for the. Uh, like there was a moment where I was like, "I think I'm about to drill through the foundation." Yeah, you need
1: you need about an inch. Yeah, these are these <laughs> you know, were maybe an inch. And these a were half. like
0: yeah. like two and a half inch bolts.
1: I have um. So the mounting I do have for this. And I tried to mount this on the arm in my camper, you know, one of those, like, flexible monitor arms, and it wouldn't fit. And I was like, God damn it, it doesn't fit. And I got really frustrated. This was right before my trip. So I drilled a hole in sort of the, like, (laughs) Marvin the Android-looking sort of base mount of this thing. And then just, like, the Pharisees nailing Jesus to the cross just drove a, like, quarter-inch mega screw like right through it into the frame of the trailer i'm looking at that right now and that that held yeah i Uh, bet it did (laughs) yeah
0: i hate to tell you but uh i think you voided the warranty on your camper
1: the warranty on the camper is long gone, uh, yeah, but yeah, uh, that's... the warranty on the monitor, uh, yeah, don't tell Spectre anybody.
0: Uh, just... <laughs> I also want a, uh, a, like, whatever your trailer, like, your camper company. <laughs> like...
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've got a story about that, man. So I'll, I'll try to make this super quick, but I was driving on Christmas Eve from, like, a rest stop in Virginia, and this uh-huh. was the day that it was, like... Five degrees throughout the East Coast, so I had slept in my super like sleeping bag. Fortunately, like Sierra Designs, like uh, nice warm sleeping bag. Got up and I was driving to my sister's house in Pennsylvania. <laughs> And I pulled over for gas in Virginia near Lake Anna off I-95. And there's this Eastern Virginia accent that I will not quite do justice to, but mm-hmm. I'll try to represent it And this. So I'm in there pim- pumping gas. It's freezing cold. There's two tiny little cats, like huddled. They're like shop cats, uh-huh. like sort of piled outside the shop looking at me. And I'm filling up, and this guy drives up. And he looks out, and he's like, I up there, there camper from what year.
0: That's amazing.
1: I'm, I'm sorry, what year? <laughs> you know, like, and he's like, yeah, what year is our camp there?" there, And, and I, I was like, oh, yeah, I, I believe it's 1966. Yeah, it's an older one. And so I went inside the store to pay. And he was like, oh, I didn't camp, man. You been sleeping in there? And, and, and I was like, yeah, yeah, uh, in Florida, I, I have been sleeping in there. Uh, you know, it's 1966, but the frame's still pretty good. And then, you know, I was like, I had this this sudden flash of memory, which is the company that made my camper, Trailblazer, had apparently had a factory in Virginia not far from where we were. Oh, my God. And so I was like, you know, I think most people have never seen these before. This one's from Wisconsin, but I actually think that they had a factory right around here. And this other guy was in the gas station was so like... Oh, yeah, they did. Right out there on, uh, you know, Dunedal Road. It was right there before the Shonies used to be. Uh, Yeah, I remember that. They made them there. And I was like, yeah, probably to the 1970s. And he's like, yep, that's about them right. And he apparently he remembered the Trailblazer Camper Factory from Fredericksburg, Virginia. This is is
0: why you talk to people in gas stations. This This is is exactly the reason why. Like, for shit like this, it's like... uh, on my, on the way to my sister's wedding in like 2007, I, I ended up stopping at a, I was having car trouble or something like that. And like, and spoke to a a man at the, uh, at the gas station who was like straight out of a Tom Waits, like music <laughs> video or something like that with like, like long curly hair and wild eyes. Um, it could
1: have been portrayed by Iggy pop.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's in like a, a mashup Darum-ish of film. Tom Waits and Iggy pop and you know, when we somehow start talking about, I think he like noticed that I had a bike on my roof or something. So we start talking about bikes or yeah. something. And he went on this long, like explanation of, of the trouble that he'd had with his puriformis. It was one of those where you can tell that this person has gone to a doctor and has heard the name of one piece of their anatomy. And now yeah. it has a kind of like liturgical importance to them. Um, And it it was amazing talking to him and it ended with him being like, like looking at me and just being like, and you never stop, never stop doing what you love. (laughs) And like, it was just, it was amazing. Like it was just like one of those wonderful moments in a gas station that I'd never would have happened if I hadn't started chatting with the guy.
1: So what's, sorry, what's the name of that anatomy in question again? Uh,
0: The piriformis is one of your uh, gluteus external rotators Uh, So you have a series of muscles that traverse uh, from the outside of your pelvis and they kind of wrap around your butt. But your piriformis, your glute med and your glute minimis are are more responsible for like fine rotations of your Mm. of your legs. Um, And they're small muscles and the sciatic nerve travels between all three of them. (laughs) And so if you have any troubles with any of those muscles, if they get um, inflamed or overtight, which they can, cause they're really small, that's usually the result of um, when people get what they think is sciatica um, because the muscles, mm. those, those muscles clamp down on the sciatic nerve and then you get pain radiating down mm. your leg. That is like mm. sciatica, but sciatica only really happens when your lower back, the vertebrae start getting out of alignment, and the spinal column gets uh, compressed in there.
1: That an anatomical PSA provided by Campfire Endurance. That's a freebie. <laughs>
0: We should hashtag that's a freebie. That could be one of our hashtag, hashtags. That's a
1: free. That's hashtag a freebie. be our first advertiser. <laughs> well, well, I mean that's a pretty good ramble. Shall we talk book? Shall let's we? talk.
0: Uh, let's talk book. Let's talk about this like kind of the strange and wonderful thing that we've got in front of us. Uh, which I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know what to expect with this. Yeah. Um, I guess I don't know. Maybe I was sort of expecting. Actually, I think I did know what I was going to expect. Like. My kind of riff with Lethem, Uh, so listener, we are, we are talking about Jonathan Lethem's 2020 novel, The Arrest, Um, and uh, Jonathan Lethem, um, author of lots of books, um, but uh, probably the most famous ones, uh, The Fortress of Solitude and Motherless Brooklyn, uh, I would say, are the ones that really kind of get the most, um, the most play. Um, The Feral Detective, Gun with Occasional Music, Amnesia Moon, As She Climbed Across the Table, Girl in Landscape, You Don't Love Me Yet, Chronic City, Dissident Gardens, and A Gambler's Anatomy. Um, A lot of books. Yeah, and I'll just say, like, I had fewer expectations because I actually
1: haven't read Lethem, and I have seen the uh, Ed Norton Motherless Brooklyn movie, and I once read several volumes of a Lethem curated Philip K. Dick anthology, which I thought was great. And Lethem to me has always existed in this sort of pack, including uh, Jonathan Satherin Foer and Nathan Englander. And I've never really, like, I. To me, they're all sort of the same person. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't quite tell them apart because they all sort of emerged around the same time. Although, I yeah. think I've realized that of the three, Lethem is probably my favorite. And and certainly, <clears throat> the fact that he was kind of... I mean, he remember he wrote an essay several years ago called You Don't Know Dick? Yeah. Uh, celebrating uh, Philip K. Dick. And one of the things I've always kind of liked about him is a kind of... Unapologetic for a literary author, admiration of kind of Silver Age sci-fi and comic books and things like that. I love that he, he embraces nerd culture in a way that a lot of quote-unquote literary writers don't. So I've always kind of liked him, but this was actually my first Lethem read.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and the reason I picked him was because I really thought that he was going to be a perfect fit for Upper Middle Brow. Um, like, the, for all the reasons yeah. that you just that you just mentioned, um, does have a real love of popular culture. I mean, like, Motherless Brooklyn is still one of my favorite books. I just adore it. Um, it's much better than the movie. The movie is a, an interesting but, but real departure from the book.
1: I like the movie, but it, that suggests to me that I've done it in the right order. Yeah. Then. Um, because I imagine that if I had read the book, the movie might disappoint me.
0: Well, let's, um, yeah, let's, uh, let's get into it. Um, give us uh, yeah, tell us, uh, start us off with, uh, with our characters.
1: Sandy slash Alexander DuPlessis slash journeyman slash middleman slash everyman. In the narration, he refer, he is referred to as journeyman. And one sense is that's how he thinks about himself. Um, so we meet him as a middle-aged guy living in a kind of, well, I guess I won't say that. I, it's hard to do the character without the setting. Um, yep. He is a middle-aged guy living in a somewhat post-apocalyptic America. In fact, on the coast of Maine, on a peninsula, somewhere somewhere in the mid-coast region, um, in an area that will be familiar to anybody who's familiar with mid-coast Maine. Although the names are fictional, and um, I don't think they completely correspond to actual places. There's sort of, there's a bit of compositing happening. Um, And he uh, was a somewhat successful journeyman uh, screenwriter who uh, was kind of the assistant and um, the typewriter Mm -hmm. uh, to sort of his business partner and often boss, Todd Baum, who we'll talk about in a little bit, but who found himself more or less when uh, sort of the modern uh, technological world came to a halt found himself on uh, the coast of Maine visiting his sister in a community uh, that was very well prepared for such an event because you have essentially a collection of back-to-the-landers and the sorts of people who make biodiesel and plow their farms with horses and know how to knit anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And so since the arrest, um, which is uh, Lethem's term for a kind of uh, grinding to a pause of uh, technological society and certain things, Uh, He's been making his living as a butcher's assistant and delivery boy. And the first task that we find him at is delivering uh, some low-end pork meat to an inmate, Uh, a man named... What's his name again? Uh, Um, Jerome
0: Cormance.
1: Jerome Cormance, who we later learn uh, molested some teenagers and was sort of... His punishment was exile, which was actually a very humane punishment, uh, Mm -hmm. given the sorts of things that could have happened. So that's um, Journeyman slash Sandy. Uh, Sandy is um, not somebody who takes a lot of action. Uh, We sense he's smart. We sense that he's talented, but he tends to let other people tell him what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, that's where we find him at the beginning and, in fact, towards the middle of the novel. Mm
0: Um, Peter Toddbaum is our second principal character. Uh, he is um, Journeyman's former um, writing partner. They met, they met in college, and Toddbaum asks uh, Journeyman to accompany him to L.A. where they post up in a uh, a motel called the Starlet, which is wonderful, and not
1: exactly L.A. Uh, uh, Burbank.
0: That's right. Uh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and that's what you get with Lethem. You get. You get the details that matter and yep. then the the details that don't matter are sort of abstracted in, in very pleasurable ways. I mean, he's talked about this also, like he used to try to be very accurate with his depictions of places and all that would happen was he would get a lot of mail from readers that would be like, oh, excuse me, you seem to have gotten this incorrect. The correct address of the blank, uh, you know, uh, bank and trust on Main Street is and he was like, right, oh, my right. God. Um So they post up in a hotel called The Starlet where Todd Baum kind of bloviates and, and Journeyman writes it all down they are visited during that period of time by uh, Sandy's sister, Maddie, who you'll talk about in a minute. Um, and, and there's some sort of event that occurs between Todd Baum and Maddie that may or may not be consensual. We're not totally sure. Um, but it is the plot irritant in the past that will probably explode in the present of the novel. Um, After that occurs, um, Journeyman believes that he's kind of done with Todd Baum, but then discovers that he's not. Todd Baum kind of joins the film industry and very quickly becomes an executive. And he tosses Journeyman a lot of work. Um, And Journeyman, like you said, gets sort of known as kind of a script doctor, Uh, but none of his own work ever gets made. And what Journeyman is working on this whole time is a plot idea that Todd Baum came up with and that Journeyman's sister Maddie added to um, called yet another world. That is an imagination of two post-apocalyptic plots kind of jamming together and crossing over each other. Um, A, a,
1: a, A parallel universe plot with characters from each universe. And, and I would say it is represented by the narrators as a good idea, and it, it sounds like a good idea.
0: Yeah, I think it's described as one point, as like it's like Game of Thrones in space, but it's kind of a white whale. Ah, uh, it keeps yeah. getting reinvented. It never really finds a home. Sandy is always kind of taking Todd Baum's notes and rewriting it, and it it just is kind of spiraling out into ma- probably never getting produced. Um, and that was what Journeyman had been doing for a living it was kind of working for Todd Baum, working as a script doctor when he v- he was visiting his sister at the moment of the arrest. Right.
1: Uh, One Sense's Todd bomb maybe could be a good script writer, but would would just rather have Sandy do the hard part of Mm -hmm. it and would rather be the ideas guy. But he is a good talker and he is a manipulator. Um, And yes, he seduces Madeline probably. Uh, It doesn't sound like it would pass the legal definition of uh, rape or sexual assault, but she is certainly not happy about it later, and it sounds like he was manipulative Mm -hmm. and conniving. Madeline uh, was beset with a lot of health problems as a young person, and then sort of blossomed in college into a sort of like attractive tall back to the lander uh who sort of cures herself of her skin ailments and other things by being outdoors a lot doing a lot of gardening eating fermented things
0: she's essentially all the people we worked with at (laughs) schwanky
1: she's she is yes you know attractive confident smart um, and I, I I think of all three of these people as intellectual equals, but having mm-hmm. very different intellectual strengths, too. Um, and Madeline's sort of earthy. She is very disillusioned by her visit to Burbank, um, yeah. and she's angry at Todd Baum, but she's also angry at Sandy. Sandy doesn't quite understand why. He senses that he should have done a better job protecting her from Todd Baum. But even Madeline can't really articulate exactly what the problem was, what the complaint is, and doesn't want to, but is disappointed with him. Um, but they maintain a relationship. She continues to be disappointed with Sandy in the post-arrest world, because Sandy is not a particular post-apocalyptic badass, and at one point tries to teach him to be a mushroom forager, and he's just not very good at it, despite being a smart guy, uh, all he manages to be able to do is sort of like odd jobs and deliveries mm-hmm. and things like that. And yeah. he, oh, I should also should also say he has a crush on the, 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 the woman who moved into the library, who, who kind of appointed herself librarian. And so that's yeah. the
0: characters. Yeah. Well, I, I do want to say just quickly, because I think this will come back. Um, mm-hmm. One of the great sadnesses of the first half of this book is that um, there, there's a real theme of storytelling kind of running yeah. throughout the whole thing. And like you said... Sandy's not very good at at any of the post-apocalyptic things. He would be very good as the kind of local regional storyteller, you get the sense, if he simply had the wherewithal to to take on that mantle. And it's that vacuum... That Peter Toddbomb senses and exploits when he appears in this particular setting.
1: Well, do you want to just explain the sort of the the plot device that gets Toddbomb <laughs> three thousand miles across the country from where a, he was in the arrest?
0: Again, like another another one of these wonderful like lethal, doublings. Not just a plot it's not device. just a plot device, it's an actual device. <laughs> um yeah. and like and I think we should explain the arrest. Yeah, I think that, yeah, that we absolutely. should talk about what that actually is. But but in short, listener, um, technology has essentially stopped working. Um, it's never really outlined exactly why, which I think is which I think is a strength in this book. Yeah. Um, but most technologies don't work anymore. Well,
1: mechanical technologies work. Like shovels still work. Right. right. Shovels, Electrical and chemical technologies seem to have... And computer technologies.
0: Tr- yeah. But, but it's weird because the the device that Todd Bomb shows up in is powered by yeah. like spent fuel rods or, or something like that. So like science still seems to... Func- physics seems to function in some ways, but not in others. Yes. In ways that are... Helpful for the plot, <laughs> which you're kind of like. Okay, I mean we're in speculative fiction land anyway, so we can do whatever you want.
1: Do you want to do your reading now sure. in yeah. the recap? Because I, I think you have a reading that's a description of this, and it was a moment I really, really admired.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, the the entire chapter is probably too long for a read. I'm I'm fond of the Rihanna banana. That's where I was going. Uh, yes, yeah, I was. Yeah. That's where I was headed. This paragraph begins with journeyman it's a series of questions like what could have caused it so i'm going to start there and uh and then read to the end of the chapter which is which is about a full page so this might go on for a little bit dear listener um a solar flare eco -terror, terror 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 species revenge the revolution had journeyman's world jumped the shark The stars didn't go out, one by one. The US wasn't replaced with the next thing. It was replaced by wherever one happened to be. The place one happened to reside at the moment of the arrest, which after a fitful start had come overnight. Did they even call it the arrest elsewhere? Journeyman counseled himself to be done with such speculation. Be here now. Wherever you go, there you are. All politics are local. Every bumper sticker had come true at once, even as the cars slumped sidelong from the roads to make way for other means of transit. Every tank seemed sugared by the same prankster. The gasoline turned to a thing that inched from the pump nozzles like molten flourless cake. Guns worked for months, for nearly a year after the initial arrest, then died too, souring like milk. The bullets no longer even blew up if you shattered them with a hammer journeyman had seen it tried. Goodbye to gasoline and bullets and to molten flourless cake. Goodbye to coffee, to bananas and Rihanna, to Father John Misty, to the cloud, to news feeds full of distant core meltdowns, to manatees and flooded cities and other tragedies journeyman had guiltily failed to mourn. Hello instead to solar dehydrators, rooftop rain collectors, to beans, kale, and winter squash, to composting toilets and humanure, to a killing cone, feather plucker, and evisceration knife, say hello to chasing a screaming duck into a pond to drag back to the killing cone, to being the butcher's sluice boy. Had Journeyman known that barns were traditionally painted red to disguise the bloodstains? He hadn't. Journeyman had been playing catch-up since the arrest, cribbing from field guides, farmer's almanacs, seed catalogs, old Michael Pollan paperbacks. Could he become a man of the soil in midlife? Nah, he was too old a dog for that trick. The peninsula was choked with expert organic farmers, lured here by the locavore movement. His sister was one of them. That's why Journeyman worked with the butcher, Augustus Cordell, sluicing bloody steel tables, retrieving offal and call for Victoria's sausage making. Victoria's creations, her summer sausage, her hard salami, her black pudding, were prized by the whole peninsula, but also used as barter with the people of the Cordon. As it turns out, therefore, Journeyman could wish he'd been carrying a packet of them in his Telluride Film Festival backpack five minutes later the same morning after climbing the lake's overgrown driveway, Back to the main road,
1: Jonathan Lethem. I'm so sorry that I confused you for Jonathan Saffron for <laughs> who's
0: who's pretty who's pretty damn good He's himself. Good. I you yeah, know yeah. like no, I, any I, anybody that has the guts to put an entire page of exclamation points on a chapter on a page and publish it, you know deserves our admiration too. But fair, fair enough.
1: I'm also sort of underread. Uh, also, <laughs> um, that is just a masterful. Page. It's just, it's poetic. It's descriptive. It's familiar. It's funny. It's sad. It. It. It's like I could imagine him writing this first, and then be like, okay, I need to build a novel around this because it's so good. I need to create a novel that will exist to house this page.
0: What What are some of the I could see you reacting to some of them, but of course, our readers can't see that. What are some of the highlights of that passage that I just, just like, you adore? Okay.
1: Yeah, like just—I mean, first of all, it's a little bit familiar to me, and 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 I have to admit that like some part of me is prepping for this particular version of the apocalypse a little bit, you know. Like every year, I like I'm like today I'm gonna learn how to can tomatoes with a pressure canner, you know. Like I better God, I better figure, I better start keeping some of my kale seeds just in case, you know. Like I can't buy them anymore, mm-hmm. so so I am familiar, but just like. You know the combination of like reference books the whole catalog and old michael pollan paper books as you know the canonical literature of this world um i mean there's there's a poetic rhythm to it but then the details bananas rihanna father john misty you know, the comforts of the modern world, the things that we love, and then also something that rhymes with Rihanna that you can't get anymore unless you live where they can grow bananas. Like, you know, that it's poetic, but it's completely true. And it's sort of equally poetic and naturalistic. It's like reading Shakespeare. It's like reading F. Scott Fitzgerald. It's like reading Melville. It's like reading Whitman. um, But also like reading... An old Michael Pollan paperback about what slaughtering hogs mm-hmm. is like, you know, it's got both of those qualities. And I probably will think of other things to say, but you talk about it. It's your passage. Of- no,
0: I, I, I mean, I, a lot of those. Th- yeah. A lot of the same things you just said. I, I think the thing that I love the most about it is the swerves between the general and the specific um you know eco terror terror terror, terror. <laughs> yeah i mean the, the
1: united states was not replaced by the next thing it's replaced by wherever you happen to be yeah and all the bumper stickers came true wherever you go there you are all politics is lo- i mean just yeah
0: yeah it's marvelous it's um you know the um one of the things that this book is imagining is basically the goodbye the g- goodbye to figuration like goodbye to the figurative, goodbye to goodbye to giant ideas, um, because a nation a nation is just one big idea that we all decide yeah. to believe in together, um, unless at the particular moment one branch of that particular government is committing suicide on C-SPAN, and, and and then the way that he moves from a general idea to a specific horrifying one you know, say, say hello to chasing a screaming duck into a pond to drag back to the killing cone, killing cone.
1: (laughs) By the way, I don't have the pages in front of me. I I just, I'm just remembering these lines. Yeah. Yeah,
0: It's, it's, it's great. I mean, there's, um, you know, there's a real tradition of poetry that trades in this particular horrifying tradition. Um, uh, there's a great poem that begins, um, Uh, A frog, the power mower caught, chewed and clipped of a limb with a hobbling hop has got to the garden's verge and expired there. Mm. And every time I read that poem and listen to it, you know, like I, I see the horrible sense of this poor frog getting caught in a power mower managing to get to the edge of the lawn and then bleeding out there. And it is one of, the, and it, there's a whole series of poems in this, in this vein of um, there's a, a, a very sad one about the the speaker's dog dying and it trades in the same manner of moving from the, the general large idea to the specific horrifying image um, that I really think this book is about. Like this book is about the death of an idea and the aftermath um, that comes from the death of a large idea and the vacuum that that creates and then what humans will fill it with
1: and what is worth trying to hold on to i i think that's what the, the book actually ultimately wound up being about yeah um, or, or i think that's what we're building.
0: Um, so that's, that's the arrest. That's the, the big thing that the, the the big thing that is going on. Uh, we're still kind of in our, we're kind of in our, we're still in our recap here. Um, but we were saying that that was important to get out. Um, why don't you tell us about the two timelines that we experience in the first half of the book?
1: Well, and I think we kind of cobbled together the, 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 the earlier timeline in our character descriptions. So the two timelines are sort of Todd Baum and uh, Journeyman slash Sandy's relationship in college and in Hollywood. And that's rendered as a series of flashbacks between the action of the present. Um, and the action of the present takes place pretty quickly over this. Well, there's sort of two time periods Um, But the novel opens in a day where um, Journeyman is made aware um, by some people of the Cordon, which is this community of people who live at the edge of the peninsula, which is where um, uh, Sandy and Maddie and their community live and have managed to get some motorcycles running with some combination of uh, feces and other things. Um, these people kind of defend their borders in exchange for a sort of a tribute of food from time to time. They announce, oh, hey, there's this guy in a strange car and he's looking for you, Mr. DuPlessis, AKA Journeyman, or Maddie, and we find out that it is, in fact, Todd Bomb, uh, uh, Journeyman's old friend who, in fact, is in a kind of supercar, um, something like a tank combined with an earth boring machine combined with an apocalypse bunker uh, combined with an espresso bar, um, <laughs> and and it, it is it is shiny, it is gleaming, it is chrome, it is bulletproof, it is nuclear powered, it has a glass dome. Um, it's kind of like my camper, but much more badass. <laughs> um, And because it also has everything somebody, one or two people would need to survive indefinitely. Um, and And it has taken Todd Baum across the country, we learn, where he for a while was living with a bunch of other rich Hollywood types in Malibu until their private security goons turned on them and killed everybody but Todd Baum, according to him. He's a liar, so it's possible all of this is made up. And then he journeyed across the country looking probably for... The people I'm guessing he suspected might still be alive and might have a somewhat um, functional society that could give him refuge. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he is shown up there uh, shown up there in this community. Uh, Sandy sort of welcomes him, shows him that he can stay at this little park called Founders Park. And after a month or so. Todd Baum has kind of created a social niche for himself, making people espresso and telling them stories of the wide world post apocalypse, Mm -hmm. basically using his same talents that made him a living in his prior life, sort of manipulation, bullshitting and providing material goods and raconteering. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, this is going okay, um, the, you know, they're feeding him, he's entertaining people, it all seems to be working out. However, the cordon um, st- basically reports, actually, you might have to help me with this, that they are starting to have conflict with another group of people who basically want to kill Todd Bomb and take his machine. Mm-hmm. And so at, at the point, about halfway through the book, we reach a point, where the cordon is saying, hey, community of East Tinderwick or whatever it's called you need to give us that machine. Um, We're going to need it. Um, And there's the threat of implied violence. Mm -hmm. um, And so that's kind of where we end this section. Yeah. Um, The other thing we should say is that Maddie hasn't really talked to Todd bomb at all. Although finally at one point she shows up in the middle of the night with a blowtorch and a hammer and sort of performatively tries to break into his machine and then leaves, um, which is, Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and when, see, Maddie and Todd Baum seem to understand each other in a way that Journeyman doesn't really fully understand. Yeah. Um, nor do they. I think that Todd Baum likes Maddie. Maddie does not like Todd Baum. Totally. I think that's part of what's going on, too.
0: And after and after that attack, uh, Maddie's attack on the on the Blue Streak, the supercar, um, that um, Journeyman goes out to talk to Todd Baum afterwards. Um Todd Baum has written a contract on a napkin because um, Todd Baum has this idea that the script, the yet another world um, that he gives Maddie uh, credit for making better, um, because she points out that in the original treatment for the script, um, one half is interesting and is kind of the uh, the dystopian world. And then the other half, which is given to Mm -hmm. the female protagonist, is really bland and boring um, and is basically like a total failure of the Bechtel test. Uh, The female side (laughs) of the story simply exists to highlight and shine light upon the male side of the story. Maddie in one of those. Maddie is Bechtel before, like 20 years before Bechtel. Bechtel, yeah. She points out like, hey make that world, make her world bad too, make it post-apocalyptic. Um, and so that story turns into two divergent, one dystopian, one post-apocalyptic world. Todd Baum has it in his head that he, his and Maddie's creation has somehow come true, and they are living in the post-apocalyptic side. Um, you do get the sense that Todd Baum is sane, but that he might be beginning to go a little bit off his rocker,
1: which would be understandable uh, given what he's experienced. If he's telling the truth about totally. what he's experienced, uh, yeah, you look like you've unclear. got a
0: reading for us.
1: <laughs> I have put on my reading glasses. I was hoping to. <laughs> well, you're also
0: brandishing out. the book. You know, I kind of see you like like grabbing uh, grabbing the book.
1: Well, I was hoping to start out our, uh, if you're okay, our, our discussion uh, with a reading yeah. that I find very admirable, too. So I love the part that you just read. And this was another moment that I thought just did a really good job orienting us to the character, the protagonist of Journeyman. The moment that we're in, this is on chapter four, but only about 10 pages into the, I think it's on page nine. And it just it's just one of those moments where sort of the world we're living in makes itself clear to me very quickly, but also disturbingly. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, journeyman has gone out to the prisoner, Corments. We don't know he's a prisoner, but he's gone out to the lake of loneliness, or the lake
0: of uh, the lake of tiredness. Lake of tiredness. I love it.
1: <laughs> um, to deliver uh, some, you know, low-grade meat. Uh, to the prisoner because the people of this community are humane enough that they're not going to let him die, even though he, he uh, has been caught molesting some teenagers. Mm-hmm. Sandy says, hello, Jerome. Storyteller. Tell me a story. A standard provocation from Cormance. I'm not your storyteller or anyone's, Jerome. No, you're the butcher now. Did you bring me a lean chop? A portion of somebody's beloved lamb named Freckle or Daisy. He scurried alongside journeymen as they moved to his deck. I brought you some pig, good enough for soup. But what's the pig's name? A he pig or a she pig? Did you slaughter her yourself? Have you grown more accustomed to it? You know how I'm starved for names, Sandy. Something for my brain soup. I can live without the people if you'll just give me the names. Then I'll invent the people for myself. Here's a story, Journeyman said. Ed Waltz got a tractor to move a few dozen yards across his field using human waste mixed with the used oil from Mike Raritan's deep fryer. He thinks that might be the recipe. The people of the Cordon had functional motorcycles. Nobody knew the secret of their fuel, except that their rides smelled like shithouses. Ed and Mike, that's a start. How about Sarah and Jennifer and Penny? How about Susan? What can you tell me about Susan? Has anyone new moved into her yurt? I'm not sure who you're talking about. If it's the Susan I'm thinking of, she's one of those who left. Pity.
0: What about that located you in the world of the novel so quickly? well there's a lot of
1: exposition first of all we learn about the motorcycles and the cordon and we learn that people are leaving and they're never to be returned again we we learn that you know there's meat available um and um we kind of understand or we're starting to understand journeyman's role And all of this, we're starting to kind of piece together the society we're living in. But we're also, I think we're understanding that this is a novel about scarcity and loss, Mm -hmm. too. And this creepy guy, um, he's kind of playing with that idea. Um, You know, what was the pig's name? Tell me the story. And you already have the sense of a hunger for the past world. You know, he his survival needs are being met, but he wants living water. You know, yeah. he wants brain soup, and I think that's going to be one of the themes. I think that 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 is one of the themes of this novel, which is once you've kind of figured out how to survive in this world, what else do you need, and what do you preserve if something threatens that survival? Um, so that's fairly early on in the book, but yeah. that was one of the moments where I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna like
0: this." <laughs> it it had a real. Um, when I, when I, I listened to that section, it had it had the, the rhythm of something where I was like, oh, I've heard that exact rhythm before. You know, I was like, mm. that's and I, I would love to ask Lethem, Um And I was like, what is that reminding me of? Um, and there's a section in T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Um, mm-hmm. that has a very similar moment when the speaker is kind of assailed by a, someone who wants something else from him. Um, and the the line is, um, uh, there I saw one I knew and stopped him crying, Stetson, you were with me in the ships at Millay, the corpse you planted last year in your garden. Has it begun to sprout? Will it bloom this year? And mm-hmm. there's something about that that I was like, God, that seems very similar. This kind of like sort of nonsensical, but also like very sensical given the world of the book in this case and the world of the wasteland in that case. I don't like Jerome, the character, but I do like and understand his, like his thirsting for meaning basically. Um, Yeah. That's
1: sort of like, give me meaning, give me brain soup. You know what? I hadn't really put it together until you said it reminded me of something, but I just realized like, uh, um Hannibal Lecter in the prison you know particularly as as um portrayed by Anthony Hopkins you know like Clarice tell me about the outside world like hungry for conversation hungry and eager to match wits with Mm -hmm. somebody who might be close to his equal, you know? And I, you also have that sense of like, he's like, you're a storyteller. You're one of the smart ones. You're an equal, you know, because this guy, Jerome is kind of an intellectual
0: too, a very creepy, uh, bad
1: intellectual. Um,
0: Well, if we want to, if like, I think that's a great point that you just made that it reminds you of Hannibal Lecter. And it's reminding me of a moment in a poem and, it's you know if we pull back to for a second to talk about craft strange characters who question your narrator are an excellent device yeah (laughs) really really helpful thing because their weirdness is what makes the exposition possible
1: right exactly and yeah he's like what's wrong you know what's wrong with you why are you not being the storyteller and that's like the, one of the chief questions, and he says it very, very bluntly. Yeah. Um, and he's able to say it bluntly, and he's also, you know, I'll tell you a story. Like this guy over here got the tractor working with feces, and you get this other really important plot point sort of tucked into that, and you it, you're getting exposition without realizing you're getting it because the creepiness of the scene is kind of taking you into. Yeah, it's it's masterful, and this book is very derivative in general. You know, it's it's there's not a lot of new territory. Here and, and I'm fine with that, because it, it, it feels like a fresh version of a familiar
0: mm-hmm. story. Um, since we're in that area, I, I've got a question for you about, about hard starts. Generally in fiction, screenwriting, pretty much any kind of creative endeavor, by this point, like the whole idea of starting in the middle of something is a tried and true thing. And we, we know by now that that is generally the better way to, to go. I mean, Shakespeare is always the best example. Um, You really begin in the middle of like, you're just like, I mean, you know, I mean, Hamlet begins with the same question the audience has that a character has, you know, it starts with who's there. (laughs) It's and and we see that a lot. This this book also starts. It's hard. Um, I listened to it. And I think the problem for me is that the first sentence is difficult to parse and the first sentence is this road is laid on by the land's dictation that yeah. is a difficult sentence to parse to figure out where we are and what is going on we certainly are in the middle of something a horse path once again it isn't smoothed or straightened routered through the hills it climbs and collapses, adopts their shape. Here you might not see something coming until it is upon you. Should there be word of a thing traveling furious? Fair enough. Be patient. What wends towards your, your town, town gets get there, there when it, it will, will. I, okay am I, I I'm almost there yeah. it's It is lacking some of the things that we need in a in a in a, in, in, in the middle of things start but I'm okay with that. Like, there's plenty of other difficult starts. Um, the difficult start of Infinite Jest goes on for 200 pages.
1: <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, I think it works because it doesn't last very long. Uh-huh. And even in that first paragraph, I mean, you have a whiff of something wicked this way comes, totally. right? Like yes. And then when even... By the time of the second graphs, you have, like, oh, the crows are in the canopy. You can sense them, but you can't see them. And already... I think that this these first two paragraphs are telling us so that when Todd Bomb shows up in that machine, you know this isn't going to go well. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And you get that from the first two paragraphs. And yes, I agree. If he did if he did it for a long time, it would be a problem. But pretty quick. It's you know, it's about two pages. It's a bit abstract. I wouldn't want 20 pages of it. I would certainly not want 200 pages of it. But the fact is, eight pages later you know, Journeyman's delivering the pig to the old pedophile and getting teased for not being a storyteller, and we're learning that the Cordon has Harley-Davidson's that run on human feces. Like, And you're like, okay, this is great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and and I think that's important that it's almost sort of like, I don't know, maybe this is not a, this is the first analogy that comes to mind. It's probably not a very good one as an athlete, but it's like maybe you can get away with a slow... Start in a race if you're like really fast. After that, uh, I'm not sure that's actually true. That's probably not true. You probably no, it is wanna, true.
0: Uh, that's that's that. Okay. You <laughs> should start slow.
1: <laughs> well, there you go. Um, so so it is true. But it it is there are things in the world where you can tolerate being a little bit slow at first if you know you're gonna you know burn rubber at some point soon and Lethem pretty quickly starts burning yeah. rubber and and then it heats up quickly. And then he slows it way the hell down mm-hmm. too. And so like you spend about a hundred pages in like roughly three hours yeah. of action. You know, and what journeyman is thinking. And then he goes in there and there and 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 uh Eek and the other guy in the motorcycle are like, Yeah, Mr. Deplussy, you should talk in this horn here, and he talks. Could that really be Todd Baum's voice? Yes it is. Flashback to LA. Yeah. You know, and then like five minutes happen in the present. Another flashback to LA. 10 minutes happened in the present. Another flashback to L.A. And in the span of about four hours, you've got the entire backstory of these characters and mm-hmm. they're parked at um, Founders Parked. And so I actually find, to me, part of what makes that part work is that Lethem is demonstrating a real control over mm. pace. And so he's like, yeah, I'm going to go a little bit slow for a second, but don't worry. Yeah, we'll get like, there. This is, is going to get good.
0: I, I think my big problem is my pro not my big problem my problem is just that first sentence ah that's that's the thing it's it's a it's a weird sentence and like and and it's a weird book so that's okay um but it's just it's the it's the structure of it and the i think one of the problems is the verb lay which is a eternally problematic um verb if yeah. uh i don't know if if like me you're the same brand of jackass that mentally corrects everybody when they misuse lay lie in the world um and they i've learned now to never vocalize those um but it's the same I, I, thing i
1: don't because i probably get it wrong
0: myself <laughs> from time to time well, when people talk about laying down my, my my stupid knee-jerk brain just instantly responds with like you lie down, you get laid. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, <laughs> chickens lay eggs. Um, but right. it's a weird, I mean, it's a weird verb. Like, it's a very weird yeah. verb. It's irregular in two different manners. Um, it's So it's strange. I, I totally understand the, 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 but like.
1: No, I agree. It's a bad sentence. It, 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 it's, it took me about seven times yeah. to understand the point that he's making. And it's not that interesting a point, I don't think.
0: Right yeah, now. I don't think so. Like basically
1: the, just saying that it's one of those road that goes up and down because that's what the terrain exactly, is Exactly,
0: like. yeah. And I I, I read that okay. sentence and my first damn thought was like, oh, we're in Girl in Landscape territory. I don't want to go back to that book. Um, yeah. Because Girl in Landscape has a has a real, the early Lethem books have a real vagueness to them that I didn't enjoy. Um, and and I think that now he has sharpened that vagueness into something very interesting and useful and perfect for this book. Um, but man, I read that sentence and and was like, shit, like I need a person. I need a I need a person doing something, even if it's not something that I, I know what it is like I, I need I want a character or something like that. And you're right. By the time that we get to um, do the hairs on your neck rise, take a look. Much exists unseen. I'm okay.
1: I mean, I'm I'm good with it at here you might not see something coming until it was a punch. Right? right? Like, yeah. That's
0: good. There we go. Uh, Start there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and maybe that's the first sentence or <laughs> yeah. maybe you describe the word another way, you know, just to say something like your vision is probably going to be obscured by a hill or a curve or a tree Yuck. or something like that because by the time we're there... You know, you get the sense of danger around the corner, and I experience, and also that is echoed later when you hear you smell the feces and you hear the motorcycles yeah. approaching, and then even later when you hear the blue streak yeah. approaching. And there is this very strong sense in this book of the peninsula and, and where we are is safe but there is danger lurking over the hills mm-hmm. somewhere. There's danger somewhere in the vicinity of like Bangor or Gorham, somewhere on the other side of old I-95 and old Route 1. Mm-hmm. There is danger. And it's established pretty early on. It's just not quite perfect. You're right. It's close. Yeah. It's
0: good. Uh, one of the, th- the my guesses that why you like this book so much is that it really does have... Some of those attendant themes of like the great Westerns, you know, mm-hmm. those desolate landscapes where there was like where there is there is danger everywhere and lurking just over that next rise, probably Um that I, I think that you enjoy very much. I mean, I probably would. I haven't read that many old Westerns, although um
1: uh, maybe maybe I do enjoy Western films. But yeah, I do. I certainly do love the story of a... Tumultuous and chaotic and complicated landscape where it's constantly changing. And you go over this rise and you see an expansive view. Like I'm here in Vermont, and you go over a rise, and suddenly a valley opens up (laughs) in front of you, and there's a mountain, and then there's a barn. And then you go down and you turn around a corner, and suddenly you can't see very much at all. And there's trees are kind of overhanging you, and there's some cedars, and there's some really big cedars on your right. And is that a house? Is that a stone house behind those cedars? Who's in there? And then suddenly the driveway opens up, and there's a creepy man staring back at you and you love that (laughs) yeah and that is that is the opposite of illinois where
0: i live presently um that's like a poem itself right there (laughs) yeah opposite of illinois yeah i mean like you you express that perfectly but that's like that that's my sense of like the things that that you like is that mm -hmm. you you could just you could come over a hill and there would be something there that would expand into like sort of ramify into like wonder it's yeah. it's funny like I think I think sometimes you enjoy more of the particular explosion to the general, and sometimes I prefer like huge sweeps of epic emotion, <laughs> and like that's my yeah. particular bent.
1: Well, I will say <laughs> that I enjoy the emotion to be buried in in metaphor a lot yeah. of the time, and, and in landscape, I like the I like the, the the landscape to contain the emotion. I think I'm discovering this right now as I'm talking, but it rings true. I would the other reason I like this novel a lot is that I find that the ambition. Of it is extremely well matched to the scope of it. To me, this feels like reading, it feels like a smarter, more postmodern version of reading like a Larry Niven or Ray Bradbury or Isaac Asimov, like sort of Silver Age science fiction novel, which is sort of like, or Frederick Pohl. It's like, let's take one idea and that's the novel. Yeah. Uh, There's a world, it's a ring, that's the book. Yeah. Uh, You know, (laughs) There, there are beings that live on Mars with spears. Yeah, that's a book. Um, Gateway by Frederick Pohl. Like, there are mining prospectors who uh, take ships into asteroids. They don't know where the ships are going to go. And sometimes they get rich and sometimes they die. That's a book. Yeah, You know, and, and I love, and let's just explore. Let's explore what that would be like. Let's find some metaphor and meaning about our current life because all good sci-fi is about now. Yeah. um, And it's about what it means to be human. And it allows us to sort of ask those questions with a kind of narrative reducto ad absurdum. If Ursula Le Guin wants to sort of think about, like, what does it mean to have sex and gender? Well, Well, let's make a society that doesn't have those things except for five days a month. And, you know, then you can sort of, like, do those thought experiments. And yeah. so that's one of the things I love about this book is that it is not an epic. Mm-hmm. It's got a simple plot. It's got a simple setting. It's got simple, fairly straightforward characters. It's kind of like a play.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it, it has the same structure of a lot of the great plays, which is that you, for, like, the first thing you got to do is you got to get everyone in the same geographic spot. Like, right. by, by hook or by crook, like, you know, you, you've got to, like the flight's got to get canceled the storm's got to move in the cherry orchard has to be sold like
1: you need a huge tank
0: (laughs) yeah exactly i know i love like that is i mean that's what's so funny is like thinking about lethem being like okay i've got this idea how do i get him there big tank (laughs) big nuclear tank (laughs) <laughs> You're like and I love that. I love that that's the answer for him. Like that's yeah. the, you yeah, know, that's it's what we'll great.
1: do. It's great. It's great. And it's plausible. Yeah. Within the scope of the world. You there are some billionaires building machines like this out yeah. there, you know. Yeah.
0: You have a uh, you've got a question about the nature of the arrest that I'm I'm interested to hear what that is.
1: Oh, well, yeah. And this actually could have gone nicely after your reading, but it, it my question for you is do you think the arrest is explained Uh, with physics in a positive materialistic way, or do you think the arrest is a spiritual divine intervention
0: situation? I think it's the second because like, which is weird because like apparently this divine spiritual side disapproves of smartphones and gunpowder and internal combustion, but doesn't seem to yet disprove of, of nuclear fission. Um, so, and it, and it's like the way, you know, it's odd the way that things happen that like guns work for a little while and then they stop working. Um, and you know, like I, I read an interview with Lethem where the the, the interviewer asks him basically this question of like, you know, do you feel like you've given us enough detail? And, and his answer was basically like, you know, when I read sci-fi books and we get to the like explain how this all works section, he's like my eyes glaze over because honestly, like that's not what like you just said, science fiction is a vehicle to examine the ideas of now um, in a in a sometimes more um, entertaining manner. And, and, and so, I mean, I think that if it were to just be a kind of physical deterministic thing that like some, like physics has just kind of stopped working in some areas and not in others, that's a less interesting choice to me because, because if that's the case, then all you've done is consign your reader to this like experience of like, oh, physics here works and physics doesn't work here and now all your reader is doing is taxonomy for the rest of the book. And like, that's not, that I don't know, that doesn't interest me. Um, but if it is a spiritual divine thing, if this is the hand of some strange God who is um, who is really cruel, again, about internal combustion and smartphones and and things like that, but for some reason isn't cruel about some other technologies, Now I'm interested because now it's a question about, it's the, it's the age old question of religion. What have we done wrong? Like that's what's standing behind every religion in the world. Like what have we done wrong? How can we atone for it so that we can be rewarded in the future or, or in some non post death religions? How can we find a place here where we are rewarded?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that I have a different interpretation, but arrive at the same place. Yeah. Uh, Because I think for me, it's actually more interesting if there is the possibility of a mechanical positivist Mm -hmm. explanation and a... a, um, Parallel to this is I really, I didn't watch The Shining, the movie, until like maybe five or six years ago. And I love it. I've watched it like five times since then. And one of the things I love about The Shining is that you can pretty much do a thought experiment where you say to yourself, what if none of the supernatural elements are real? What if they are all Inventions of the characters' minds. Does the movie Mm -hmm. still work? And I'm talking about the movie. I've I've read some of the book. In the book, I think the the magic is real, um, clearly. But in the movie, it you could imagine that the characters are sort of hallucinating and making these things up, or the ghosts are making them hallucinate, but that the ghosts whether they are real or not, have no actual power to affect the world, they can only suggest behavior. Mm-hmm. And to me, the uncanny is far more interesting than the supernatural. Uh, you know, and so the idea that the ghosts are just sort of real, to me, that actually gets kind of boring. Yeah, the idea that the ghosts aren't real, but Jack is imagining, or maybe they're real, but they're they're really just what he's sensing is sort of, the essence of evil that has been done in this place in the past, sort of compelling him to do evil again. Mm -hmm. Then there's no bartender talking to him, telling him to kill people. That's his brain. Nobody's telling him to kill Wendy. There's no creepy sisters who want Danny to stay here forever and ever and (laughs) ever. That is jack's anger and his rage at his failure it's his alcoholism all manifesting in these these physical ways and to me that's a much more interesting story in the (laughs) same way i do find my brain being like well okay you could imagine a scenario where all this stuff stopped working through some combination of like computer viruses climate change terror terror and there are a few moments where you're sort of like, well, that doesn't make that much sense. I mean, gasoline stops working right. after a while. Yeah. Um, not quite as quickly as it does in the arrest, but maybe you could imagine maybe there's some kind of like mold or nanosite that's been introduced to the environment that mm-hmm. makes gasoline die. Gunpowder stops working after a while. It goes sour. Yeah. Not. As quickly as it does in this book. In fact, it can last for, if it's stored properly, it can last for like 50 years. And so it seems like that's an exaggeration. I like that the characters don't know, Mm -hmm. and that they are puzzled by it, and that in this situation, I think it would be natural to experience it as a sort of divine intervention. And basically God saying, you have gone too far. We're going to take this away from you. Now... And then the challenge becomes: is well, what do we build in the absence of that technology, and and what do we keep? Mm-hmm. And and I part of that is that it would be a, it, it's a fickle god to be like, yeah, gunpowder doesn't work, uh, no more bananas, no more Rihanna, but yeah, you can keep nuclear fission. Uh, like that, it, the, the idea that like some engineers in Malibu sort of out-engineered God to yeah. me, I don't like that yeah. uh, very much. Um, so that's one of my problems with that scenario. And the other one is just sort of like be very cruel of God to just like let that many people die. Mm-hmm. But I do agree that ultimately, whether or not there is some kind of divine intervention or not, the situation is asking these characters, what do you preserve? What do you preserve once you've accounted for your survival needs, which the characters in this book have managed to do through various ways. Now that might be threatened in the second half of the book. I suspect it will. Um, But um, I still think that's going to be a central question to the choices that Journeyman has to make and the other characters have to make in the second half of the book.
0: A lot of this book to me is about how do you create meaning in a world where a lot of the things that you have, a, have have taken for granted are suddenly pulled away. And that's why that uh, that very strange scene at the Blue Streak when Journeyman is in the dark watching oh, yeah. and the two former members of the Cordon do this kind of atavistic dance that ends with them having sex in the, the campfire light. To Journeyman, he's just like, what did I just see? But the thing that he's seeing is he's seeing two people trying to make meaning, again, in a world where normal meaning has been taken away. Trying to make God, I think. Yeah. And and that's the role that Todd Baum is also trying to take over when he arrives. And he is sort of doing these sermons on the mount kind of thing from the blue streak. And I suspect that there is something of the 2016 election lurking behind this book in yeah. in the the way that a charismatic person can show up and and uh what and kind of charming yeah. con man exactly
1: um, <laughs> right who has some real talent uh-huh. um and yeah. but is also the talent is somewhat vacuous uh you know, Todd Baum is good at entertaining people, and he's good at getting them to do what he wants them to do. There's not much to like about him. He's such an interesting character, though, because, again, in this question of sort of like, what do you preserve? Um, he is a force for destruction, but also he's also kind of a force for creation too. He's a sort of a trickster character. Yeah. And like many trickster characters, they behave badly, but there's something kind of charming about them. And I think one of the questions I'm guessing, I don't know, but just one of the questions I think that journeyman is going to have to answer is, does he stay loyal Mm -hmm. uh, to Todd bomb in the future? And also, is it good to have somebody like Todd bomb around Mm -hmm. in this kind of scenario, or would it be best to let, the sort of scumbag producers of Hollywood die in their Malibu mansions murdered by their mercenaries they hired to protect them from the rest of us. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's, um, I know I, I have the same, uh, I have the same questions. Um, let's see, I've got a question for you. We've just, we're sort of talking about making myth. Um, yeah, this is a very myth heavy book. You can't look at a character's name journeyman and not think of everyman um right. 15th century morality play the summoning of everyman and it's one it's this wonderfully hilarious play where it's basically just a dude meeting with a bunch of very archetypal um stand-ins before he goes and finally meets with death <laughs> Um, Doesn't he, um, doesn't he like play dice with death uh too and, and and win or cheat? Yeah. Uh, But so, and then, you know, we've been talking, we like, we just talked about like, is the arrest allegorical? Is it physical? Um, is it spiritual? The book's premise is based on a sort of allegorical idea that the real world is now playing out the script that Todd Baum and Maddie kind of brain created together it's it's a heavily allegorical and figurative book is basically my my idea here and just we're we're back in a kind of idenic place where we're sort of protected from the outside and they have pretty much everything that they need they have to work for it and sure but it's it is it is kind of a, a garden of eden setting I suspect. Your answer, I think I know what your answer might be because of your enthusiasm so far. But my question about that is when you're making books that are allegorical or telling stories, sometimes it's very easy for the allegory and the figurativeness to kind of take over. And um, where does this book sit for you on that spectrum? Are we too slid over towards the allegorical? Um, Are we some, are we pleasantly in the middle? Like, what's your answer for that one?
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, it's in the sweet spot. Nice, um, yeah. You know, I I, I I, certainly am catching the allegory of it, um, I think. I have an explanation for what I think the book is about and why Journeyman is named Journeyman and what I think, you know, the action our main protagonist is going to, I suspect, be, you, you know, have to take... Or have to choose in the second half of the book and so yeah there's sort of these allegorical qualities but I also I think part of what puts it in the sweet spot is that the world is rendered very vividly and, in my mind, rather accurately. Yeah. Yes, I think you and I have both plot uh, pointed out the plot point of, you know, okay, so internal combustion engines don't really work, or but you can kind of make them work with feces. That doesn't work. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I, 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 like, I've seen Mad Max. I know you can make methane out of waste, but, like, They don't run on methane um so there there are some inconsistencies there although i I do love the metaphor yeah yeah (laughs) Uh, yeah
0: um, it's clear that
1: these people are kind of like preserving this like power of being able to ride around on motorcycles by kind of like um with shit with shit yeah um but also just, you know, dragging the goose to the kill cone, you know, mm-hmm. that that these are people sail power and Esther sort of knowing how to sail like he's done his homework. He's describing this world reasonably accurately and we get down into the gritty details of it. And so that's to me why it sort of lands in, in the sweet spot. Yeah. Um, to me, the question is like, OK, why aren't you telling more stories? journeyman we get asked this by jerome at the beginning and when todd bomb shows up he realizes oh there's a vacuum here that I can fill into and make myself kind of indispensable to this community and maybe even get these people to do what I want and maybe to kind of treat me as kind of like a God slash leader slash prophet. Yeah. He has a story to tell, which is like he's the God and the prophet of this new reality and he and his like soulmate, Maddie are destined are destined to create this world. He's a little bit off his rocker. That's not a great story. Then there's the story the Corden is telling, which is the world is dangerous. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have to resort to violence and people like you need people like us. Sort of the like John Wayne character in every John Ford Western. The world is dangerous and you need people like me to make it safe for people like you, Jimmy Stewart. All right, you just go out there and shoot the bad guys and I'm going to raise kids. (laughs) Like that's like that's being set up too. And I think like what I'm trying to be set up for is that we have this talented storyteller And he's got to tell a third story. Mm -hmm. He's got to tell the story that this community needs to face this challenge. Um, And I think what Lethem is telling us is that the stories we tell ourselves about who we are in the world and what the world is that we live in are incredibly important because we model our behavior based on those. And we have to get those stories right. And the people who have the talent... And the wherewithal to tell those stories need—they have a responsibility. Mm-hmm. They have to
0: step up and do it. For me, it's 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 on the edge of the sweet spot. Mm. It's like it's right on the border of the sweet spot and too and too far in the direction of the allegorical. This is a question of taste for me. And one of the things that I that I love, and you know this, and by now our readers know this, is one of the things I really adore about storytelling fiction movies poetry music is the interiority of of the characters and yeah. getting to understand and empathize with them being made to feel what they're feeling is the thing that i go to art for and like a lot of letham books there's there's not a there's not a total scarcity of that but i, I wish there was a little more of it for me And I think the book is still masterful. I think it's incredibly well done. Um, Just for me, like, we're like, I I really feel the weight of the allegory. Um, Mm. And, uh, and I'm like, okay, I get it. Um, I want to know a little bit more about what, about what journeyman feels about it in, in a real, like, um, like a less thinky way. (laughs)
1: It's interesting, because, like, you recently drafted a novel, and I recently drafted a screenplay, Uh screenplay, and, like, what an accomplishment. I think we both did that for the first time, and I'm proud of both of us, but... Uh, novels can be more like the sort of thing you're describing and screenplays have to be more like the kind of thing I like. Yep. Which you don't have a lot of interiority in a screenplay. And the degree to which you understand what the characters are experiencing, it has to be in the dialogue and in the action. Mm -hmm. Having taken a couple screenwriting classes... describing how the character feels in the action is kind of a no-no. Every now and again, you can kind of get away with it, you know, like you can sort of be like, she doesn't like it. But at the same time, you know, in a novel, you can do these very vivid descriptions of interior. And, you know, there's some writers who are really, really good at it. And I think it's one of your strengths as a writer. Um, My friend Emma um, is also incredibly good at it in a way that I really admire. I don't think it's one of my strengths Mm -hmm. as as a writer. I do enjoy the sort of like... Give just enough information that the reader thinks they understand that's going on, and yeah, it, it is more on that that spectrum yeah. here. Like, I think I think I understand when uh, Journeyman is asking Maddie why is she so angry at him about. We're not really in his head, but his questions convey how he's feeling yeah. in that moment. That was my sort of hurt, sort of sad, guilty. But he doesn't know why he's yeah, guilty. And that's that I was one of like my that.
0: favorite moments of the of the first half of the book. That that terrible drive to LAX, yeah. where he just doesn't get it, and she doesn't want to have to explain it. I I I was like, oh, like it's uncomfortable, but it's, it's so. But it's so true (laughs) and like, and very true. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that I thought was really, was really great and very masterful. I do want to recommend to you from what you just said, maybe I already have recommended it to you, uh, but the film, I am love uh, Mm. uh, it's 2010 Tilda Swinton movie. It's by an Italian director. I think it's one of the more uh, with coupled maybe with Beau Trevai, Claire Denise, 2001, masterpiece 2000 I don't know those two pieces of filmmaking are like the ultimate in show don't tell uh and and just what you're explaining about you know the the use of the landscape and the stuff in it to convey the the character's interiority um yeah please go watch I am love at some point
1: yeah uh I will that sounds great and it's as a sort of like aspiring screenwriter it's maddening too because it's like Sometimes you'll watch this film and you're like, "Oh, it's just on the actor's face." But I can't write that into the script. So it's like you have to write it in a way that the actor understands how they're supposed to act it without being told yeah. so that it's perfect. And it's it's an incredible challenge. And of course that's why like two great actors can play the same role very differently mm-hmm. and both versions can be interesting yep. and good, you know. And 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 I think that's why like we keep doing Shakespeare plays over and over again because there's so much Ambiguity. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'll check out. I am love. I think we should move to. We're a little bit long. I have a few other questions, but I think we should move. Yeah, because r- I r- do stopping. have a four
0: o'clock hard out. Um, I, I will shorten things oh, up okay. because I don't have a trivia question for you today, uh, which I apologize for. I, but, I, I do have one for you, if if yeah, if, let's do it. Which I'm ex-
1: if I'm excited about. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. Okay. So um, the blue streak yes. is the name of the car. And I did a little research and came up with what I think is probably the inspiration Uh of that name. And I think probably the in-world inspiration of that name for Todd Baum. Um, And so was the Blue Streak A the spaceship of a minor character in a Larry Niven novel called Oath of Fealty from the 1970s? Was the Blue Streak B, a Silver Age Marvel comic character who was one of the original agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but later became sort of more of a villain, even though uh, Blue Streak was originally introduced as a hero? Or C, was the Blue Streak one of the battle cars in the Roger Corman film Death Race 2000, driven by a driver named Cordella, who wore a blue bikini bottom and no bikini top, thus the blue streak from, for at least two
0: different reasons. I'm gonna go with C.
1: It is B, oh. the Silver Age Marvel character.
0: I was, I was leaning, I was leaning towards B at first, but the thing that sold me on C was the attention to detail. So marvelous work. Great job channeling Jonathan Letham. It was,
1: yeah, it was a Lethem like level of detail. Exactly. The, yes. Yeah. I was like, Letham Lethem
0: would love the doubling of streak. Um, and I could really see that as uh, something that he would, um, you know, this is the man who put into the book, my favorite, my favorite joke, which is about an octopus and a uh, set of bagpipes. So remember that joke.
1: Uh, And there there is, in fact, in the movie Death Race 2000, some toplessness, too. So there's a certain certain accuracy.
0: Sounds like Um, it's on um, brand for that particular title.
1: Yes, indeed. It's 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 one of the better B movies I've ever seen, you know, sort of low budget. It's got a very young Sylvester Stallone in it and David Carradine.
0: Oh, wow. That's a very upper middle brown moment. I'm tossing you a 2010 art house Tilda Swinton film and you're tossing me. It's great. <laughs> it like averages out to the middle. I love it. That's, that's what we're, that's why this show is so good.
1: Yes. <laughs> As we modestly claim. Oh yeah, uh, it we is. We say so ourselves. <laughs> yes, goddamn great show. All right, well, uh, you've got an out in three minutes. I right? do. So,
0: so uh, listeners, thank you so much for listening today. Uh, we really appreciate you hanging out with our wild cardness, our blue streakiness. Um, but uh, if you're if you are enjoying what we're doing, uh, please uh, give us a five star rating and a review wherever you get podcasts.
1: Middlebrow is a small point production jesse dukes and chris bag are the espresso baristas raconteurs and mobile apocalypse bunker operators music by ben pajak and jesse dukes website and design by chris bag see you next time everybody